Mass Violence Podcast, the official podcast of the National Mass Violence Victimization Resource Center. I'm Dan Smith, Director of Resources and Technology for the NMVVRC. And on today's show, we're going to be talking about being a victim advocate, and uh, particularly a victim advocate for people who have survived mass violence events. We're incredibly fortunate to have Clarissa Whaley with us to talk about these issues today. Clarissa is a bit of a legend uh, in victim advocacy within the NMVVRC. Her connections to our faculty and our work go way back and continue to this day. Uh, And we'll talk about that a little bit. But uh, she's gone on to be a, a national leader when it comes to victim services. At the present time, she serves as the victim witness coordinator and victim services manager for the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of South Carolina. Thanks for being here, Clarissa, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Dan. I am happy and thrilled to be with you today. Excellent. You really do have quite the resume, and apart from just having a really long job title, uh, you got your training at both the University of South Carolina and the College of Charleston. And one thing that really stuck out to me looking over your sort of your resume and your past qualifications is that during your time at USC, you actually assisted with a project to reorganize the entire structure of the South Carolina correctional system via a criminal justice planning project, which seems amazingly ambitious for like a college project. And then when you were 21, you created, I mean, 21, you created a court administrator position for the solicitor's office. And you were the administrator of the first federal grand jury in Charleston. I know from personal experience that you've been a frequent instructor at the National Advocacy Center in Columbia since the early 2000s. And that's certainly not all. You've got basically a 15 year career working in victim services at at least. How has your work been acknowledged over the years? I mean, that seems like an amazing amount of accomplishment in a relatively short amount of time. Well, uh, I'm fortunate that it has been, but I will just tell you early on as I started uh, in my undergraduate and then um, postgraduate work, I was just fortunate to to be able to to be under the wings of outstanding um, professionals, um, professors, and 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 leaders in, in the areas of criminal justice. So that project um, with the Department of Correction was actually led by one of my professors, uh, Dean Montgomery, and he I was one of the, the students chosen to be a part of that. So that was very very cool, very mm-hmm. um, humbling at the time. I, I will say though that. Um, as well as as the work, um, I was a governor's intern, and that afforded me the opportunity while at USC to work at the solicitor's office in my hometown here in Charleston under Solicitor um, Condon, who at the time was the youngest, and I believe still on record as the youngest solicitor who's, who was seated. And um, he was very goal-orientated, and I guess I impressed him with you know, my energy as well. And so when I graduated, I was again given that opportunity um, to to carve out that first court administrator's position for the Ninth Circuit. I will tell you that I am very humbled and 
yes, fortunate to have had my work acknowledged uh, throughout my career um, in incredible ways. But I will tell you that my greatest honor and privilege is working on behalf of, of the mission of the U.S. Attorney's Office within the Department of Justice and within our state and serving our crime victims um, through, throughout our state and our nation each day. Very humbled about that opportunity. And I think that's, that's the foremost honor that I experience every day. But as a, um, a victim witness coordinator, victim services manager within the U.S. Attorney's Office, uh, I have been acknowledged through my affiliations with the U.S. Attorney's Office in, in terms of crime victims, um, professionalism. I have also been awarded um, the um, distinguished honor as a recipient of the uh, Executive Office's Director's Award for Superior Performance in Litigation in the Area of Victim Witness Management. And in 2017, I was awarded the Attorney General's Award for Distinguished Service in my role as, as a part of the trial team for the capital case of U.S. versus Ruth. I also serve on the departments and the executive offices, uh, mass violence response team. And I have a very treasured leadership role in the Southern States Victims Assistance Training Conference and have been acknowledged through my work there. I, I'm, you know, like I said, every day um, I just try to pursue my lifelong mission to serve others through the work that I am so blessed to be able to do. It's truly appreciated, and, and uh, your skill and dedication is obviously stands out, and, and people notice it. And uh, I, I think crime victims are, are definitely the beneficiaries of that. I'd like to dive right in and learn about the day-to-day activity of a victim witness administrator and find out what that's like. So can I ask you some really basic questions about your day-to-day activities? Sure, yes, please. How many folks work in your office? Well, our our district comprises over 100 employees, um, probably close to 150 employees. We have we have the, the United States attorney who is, is at the top um, in, in terms of um, guiding and di- directing the work of our office each day. And then we have, in terms of assistant U.S. attorneys, I believe there's somewhere around 60, 65 attorneys uh, whose role is to perform the mission of, of the Department of Justice uh, in, um, in protecting and enforcing the laws, um, the federal laws. And then we have uh, support staff probably somewhere around um, 90 or so, which includes our contract employees. Now, our victim witness unit each day, um, we have a victim witness unit that serves thousands of victims each year. And um, we, we have a, a pretty comprehensive caseload in, in making sure that our victims are afforded their rights under the Crime Victims Rights Act, typically known as the CVRA. Um, and we assist law enforcement and our law enforcement counterparts in ensuring that during the investigative pay, uh, part of, of each of our, our cases or the investigative stage of each case, that adherence to the Victims Rights and Restitution Act is ensured as well. And so um, 
that encompasses uh, making sure that victims are notified of charges um, and how that support can be given to them as crime victims, um, resources that are available through the department, which are numerous, uh, and make sure that they, we, we make sure that they are aware of our obligations to ensure that um, they have a voice throughout the criminal justice process, uh, that uh, they are aware that they can address the court in circumstances that deals with the release of a defendant, that uh, deals with the, um, the the sentencing of a defendant as well. And also, I think a vital part of that throughout, Dan, is to make sure that they have services that are provided, crime victim services that could be funding resources, as I said earlier, um, counseling resources, not only during the process, um, but but also at the culmination of the criminal justice process, mm-hmm. the continuum of care um, that I talk a lot about when I speak to groups, that is so essential to every crime victim. I think that that's such an important uh, function to serve because, I mean, you certainly know this better than I do, but it's it's definitely my impression that the vast majority of folks out there who have been affected by crime would be considered crime victims have absolutely no idea that their status as a crime victim affords them certain kinds of rights and opportunities to access resources, to access different types of reimbursement and so forth. One of my first jobs after I completed my training, uh, well, most of my training, um, was to, to serve as a victim advocate in our crime victim service for hospitalized crime victims here at MUSC. And the job basically involved visiting people who were admitted to the hospital as the result of a criminal victimization, usually because they were shot or beat badly or something like that, and visiting their room and talking with them about what their rights were as crime victims. And I would say, I mean, this is a long time ago now, but my recollection is that over 95% of them, if, if not 100% of them, had absolutely no idea that there was a, a government administration set up that could help them. And they were, were very appreciative to learn that under certain circumstances, their medical bills might be paid or that they could be uh, possibly reimbursed for time lost from work related to criminal victimization. And of course, that doesn't even mention some of the things that you started with, which is the right to be notified about trial dates and charges and things like that. Is, is that a challenge for folks in your office to try and educate people about what their rights as crime victims are? Well, I will tell you that it shouldn't be a challenge. Um, And that's what we work hard every day to make sure it's not. Dan, it's a responsibility that we hold dearly. And and, and it really is um, an expectation of everyone that, that interacts with victims in our office, whether it would be, you know, someone who greets them uh, at the front door, that they have some working knowledge of rights and the attention that is afforded all victims of crime. I will tell you, 
that we work hard also in awareness and training to make sure that we never forget the critical roles of, um, of victims in our system and the rights that have been afforded to them in legislation. You know, when I was with the solicitor's office, uh, you know, I was there um, in um, after the, the, the Victims of Crimes Act was instituted. I came in right after that. And, and, and I knew how important that was in terms of that legislation for our nation's victims. And, and so even then there was that need to make sure that education was done, awareness was done, but not only that, it was carried out. And I will tell you even now, the important, the scenario that you just offered in terms of working professionally and coming across victims in your professional um, life is one that why developing partnerships on, on every level um, of services is important mm -hmm. because what happens through the work that I'm fortunate to do as well in building alliances, coalitions, and working with initiatives is it, it really, at the table, it begins with working groups that are comprised of professionals that comes from all areas, multidisciplinary areas. So we're looking at healthcare providers, we're looking at social work, we're looking at mental health organizations. They are a part of that critical role in providing awareness and education of what the particular rights are for crime victims and to make sure those rights are afforded to them in every area of our society. I think that's so important, Clarissa. That's such a such a good point about partnerships and um, collaboration and cooperation amongst the folks who, uh, in in all walks of of service, who who come across crime victims. And uh, that was certainly my experience. You mentioned you started um, shortly after the Victims of Crime Act was was put into place. And I'm wondering if you could share any observations from your perspective about how the criminal justice system has changed as a result of the Victims of Crime Act. You know, how did it look when you first started your career? Um, and how is it different today from you know, in terms of the victim experience of dealing with the criminal justice system. Well, and again, that was you know in the state system, and the and and as it evolved, and my work um, has expanded to the federal system, uh, there has been critical evolution in in how you know we um, how we are able to serve crime victims. Uh, you know, of course. The beginning of it was mostly educating and understanding what the laws prescribed and what it afforded and how to actually construct divisions and and services that served. And so now more we are we are involved in um, enhancing the services every day through adding professional partnerships uh, and increasing um, education for victim service providers, and um, paraprofessionals. Uh, we have there, we've got the Office of Victims of Crimes does a, a wonderful job um, in, in reaching out to our nation's professionals and providing, you know, vital resources. And, and we've got within each state 
organizations such as South Carolina Victims Assistance Network, who who does the the annual training um, uh, during Victims of Crime Week. So there's that evolution and focus on building collaborative work together in partnerships, educating. And I also tell you that one key enhancement has been um, beyond just educating and offering training is credentialing of professionals who are working with crime victims. You know, prior to that, we had, of course, our um, clinical support, um, psychologists, psychiatrists, you know, social workers. And then, you know, with the evolution, evolution, I should say, of um, victim advocacy, we've learned that it is important for advocates who are just incredibly gifted in, in, in what they do to also not only be trained, but to be credentialed in their work. And I will tell you that South Carolina does an outstanding job with their credentialing of victim service providers um, and for advocates. I will also tell you that the evolution, Dan, also includes an understanding of what it means to have effective peer support for professionals who understand um, and are more educated into what vicarious trauma informed, um, you know, support looks like, peer support, um, secondary trauma. And, and that helps with the resiliency of, you know, my colleagues, my professionals to, to go out and to um, serve crime victims, but not also experience the burnout as well. Right, right. It sounds like, you know, you're describing that you know, a scenario in which the Victims of Crime Act really was a huge catalyst in terms of professionalizing the entire discipline of, of victim service, uh, making sure people are trained, making sure that uh, there's support uh, and, and credentialing available to really try and boost the uh, experience and improve the experience of crime victims in the justice system. And, you know, that, that makes it seem like the Victims of Crime Act was really kind of a sentinel event in the evolution of the field. Yes, yes, definitely so. Shifting gears slightly here, uh, Clarissa, obviously at the NMVVRC, we're really focused on mass violence incidents. And I know that you have some experience with mass violence as well. What was the first mass violence case that you can remember being involved with? Oh, well, it wasn't that long. Um, the, you know, the, the first case where I was obviously integrally involved in was the Roof case, um, you know, the Emanuel AME massacre, mm-hmm. uh, which occurred in 2015. You know, uh, my training um, in mass violence preparedness and responses to victims actually began, I think, somewhere around 2008 or somewhere around that way. And I attended a couple of mass violence training, um, in-depth trainings, but never thought, you know, it's one of those things where, oh, this is so horrific. And, And you see the visuals and you hear from those who have worked on on them and you think oh my goodness um i don't ever want to experience that right. but in 20 in you know in 2015 we experienced that right here 
in South Carolina. So that training actually served as a backdrop, but there's no training that could actually, quite honestly, Dan, prepare you to be in the midst of that kind of horrific event. Right. So, uh, you know, I, I worked with that case and developed a, um, was able um, under the leadership and the confidence of my U.S. attorney and management to, to manage a team to respond to the needs of the, the roof trial. And, um, and again, I, couldn't, I can't say enough about partnerships because a lot of those who worked with the team that I was able to develop actually had begun from you know, the initial event. And so it was just carving out the essentials. But, um, and I think you know what happened during that particular event. I think that we were able to, um, to, to serve the multifaceted needs of so many victims and survivors in our community. And I am just so incredibly blessed to have been a part of that and to, to lead and, and the efforts that were given to me to do so. I think in many ways, uh, from, from what I understand, the management of that trial has, has basically become uh, sort of a benchmark for other mass violence uh, trials when, when they occur to, to follow. Uh, it was just so incredibly well managed, and and I know that was one of the the recognitions that you mentioned earlier um, that was ex- just extraordinarily well deserved. Do you think, from a victim advocacy perspective, that there are big differences between dealing with victims of a mass violence event versus? a victim of either other types of violence or other types of crime? Like what sets a mass violence uh, event apart from regular old crime from the perspective of a victim advocate? Well, let me just say this too. Um, if I could just go back a moment to, oh, sure. you know, I, I was actually called to assist um, my colleagues in um, Pittsburgh during the synagogue murders as well and have been called upon as a resource you know for for other areas who have experienced since you know the Emmanuel case uh, as well and um, you know just sharing resources and and best practices as well so I've been very fortunate to be able to assist in that way but to answer your question in regards to the differences of violent crimes, victimization and and other offenses versus mass violence. Mm -hmm. You know, quite honestly, Dan, I I think that there's really all victims and survivors are hurting. That's one. That's the key. Mm -hmm. And many are grieving because of their losses. I think the distinction is that the level of um, what what that may um, incur. I I think that when we look at victims of mass violence, there's there's that challenge of just navigating the intensity of of the mass violence incident, um, and that could be where and maybe survivors have experienced multiple losses in their families in their connectional, um, and we see that throughout mass violence cases. You know, we see it in Sandy Hook where you've got a school and there's connectionals all over. You see it, um, you know, in Squirrel Hill at the synagogue um, murders, 
um, where you you got a grieving um, Jewish community. Mm-hmm. We we saw it at Mother Emanuel where you've you've got a church family that's devastated. Mm-hmm. So I think that the volume is intensified. I also believe that the complexities of how to navigate the media mm-hmm. as well as um, the court system. Uh, it, it also um, is is more enhanced when you're looking at um, victims of mass violence incidents compared to, to other cases. But the need is still there. Um, victims need to be allowed to have their voices heard for them to say what they need and not for the providers to tell them what they need. And I think that, you know, I often talk about that, that I've learned throughout my experiences that the first mistake that we can make, ever make, is to carve out a plan for victims without asking them what they need first. And so I think that that's definitely one that's critical on a mass violence case. I think that's one of the challenges, and that's why it's so important to have a cohesive victim assistance um, group or team to do that, uh, to identify those needs and to be proactive in making sure that those needs are served. I, I think that there's also the um, the differences in mass violence cases. It's usually longer for the cases to come to to final culmination. And so you've got that waiting period. And and the key to that is to make sure that, again, you've got services that are able to support them throughout, um, clinical support, resiliency support, that they're connected among their own communities. And and and, and that kind of, you know, just the, the, the mentioning communities, I think it's very important that we understand in any mass violence cases where you've got multifaceted, you know, victims from maybe it may be one community, but within that community, there are particular differences among the victims. Cultural competency um, issues may be their religious competency issues, um, identity, you know, so it, it's important that you evaluate the community of victims and within that community, the individual victims that are needing to be served. I think that's such an interesting answer to sort of think about, um, of course, a starting point of all victims deserve compassion and empathy and service, but then to also be cognizant that in a mass violence event, there's different levels of impact, as you were saying, you know, connectionals, whether it's at a synagogue or a church or a school, but when there are a large number of victims, how the needs sort of ripple through the larger community or communities even that are affected by that event that that really make mass violence. I mean, not really different in essence, but difference in in different in scope um, and magnitude uh, from. I mean, I, th- I thought that was just such a an insightful answer. One of the things, and this is sort of a, a buzzword within my field of psychology in particular, and I know it's starting to spread into victim advocacy work as well, is the phrase trauma-informed. How, how do victim advocates learn to be trauma-informed, and how does that play out in terms of how a victim advocate 
approaches uh, the victims that they work with. So maybe a concrete example would be better. Um, how differently would a victim advocate who was trauma-informed behave compared to an advocate who was not trauma-informed? Well, I think, you know, when I mentioned a key component of serving victims, all victims, is to be aware of their needs. And I think that the key for me in terms of the importance of being trauma-informed is you understand better what trauma responses look like and how they appear in victims. Um, and so therefore, you don't make assumptions and you don't compare one victim's response to another because everyone navigates their trauma experiences differently. And so when you are trauma-informed through education and training, <laughs> then you can better respond to the various ways in which trauma is manifested in individual victims that you served. And then you can be more effective in, in helping them to navigate through their crisis, through their, their everyday experiences, which quite often involves trauma cues that happen mm -hmm. um, throughout and triggers. And so um, I think that that is the key, um, Dan you are better aware of how, what it looks like, what the responses look like, and in return, how you should respond in terms of services. You mentioned that one way that victim advocates and, and victim service providers can become um, more trauma-informed is by getting some training. Uh, are you aware of any useful resources that can help service providers become more trauma-informed? Well, you know, I mentioned, um, you know, the work of OVC in terms of having a network available of training um, resources. But I also, uh, I am so fortunate, and our nation really is, because of the work of the National Crime Victims Research and Treatment Center. Uh, you know, early on in my career, I became aware of them and became a partner and they are an essential partner in terms of when you talk about trauma-informed treatment for crime victims. So uh, I have often referred victims to the services there and also with the National Mass Violence Resource Center. You know, the work that you do and, and the tip sheets that are there um, for victims, advocates, and other professionals are invaluable. And you know, they allow virtual training, you know, online training. Uh, you know, one thing that I have, I have a great resource of ready references and guides in, in my office. And that's key to me. And I think that these are um, resources that are readily available. Each state has, you know, mental health organizations that would, would help you know, victim service providers to become better aware of trauma informed. I, I believe it is just seeking out and being very intentional about the resources. And as I always say, vet everything. Mm -hmm. Good, very good advice. <laughs> um, there's an awful lot out there that probably doesn't necessarily pass the sniff test when it comes to being evidence-based or 
validated from a, a research or practice perspective. But that was, uh, you know, a, a good advice. And, and, and thank you for for mentioning the NCVC and the NMVVRC. That's uh, I didn't ask that knowing that you would mention <laughs> us as resources. The check is in the mail, uh, uh, kind of a thing. But uh, we definitely appreciate being recognized by leaders in the field such as yourself. That's that's really heartening for me to hear. Um, Dan, may I just add one? Of course. About, you know, in terms of, I think in a, when, when we look at the evolution of, of training as well and becoming more aware of how important trauma-informed resources are in providing for, for victims, what has happened also because we've got all of these great resources available, you are seeing within the U.S. attorney's offices and, um, and, and, and we get really good guidance and direction from our executive office of U.S. attorneys within the department. But you even you see that as a part of the curriculum of training. And so we are reaching out um, more often than not to these resources that I mentioned, um, you know, including the ones, like I said, that are here with, within my district in South Carolina, and um, that's available throughout our country as well. So I, I just wanted to say how important that has become in terms of training for victim service providers. Excellent. I think that's that's uh, also really good to hear. Um, Clarissa, thank you so much for sharing your experiences and your perspective on victim advocacy with us today. I think it was extremely interesting and you're so knowledgeable about this area. It's always uh, a treat to hear you share your views and it's much appreciated. We've been talking with Clarissa Whaley, who's the Victim Witness Coordinator and Victim Services Manager for the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Districts of South Carolina. Clarissa, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Dan. It's been a pleasure. This has been another episode of the MVP, the official podcast of the National Mass Violence Victimization Resource Center. Thanks for listening.